0: This evening we're going to continue with our study of the 11th chapter of Romans, and as I said when we began this chapter, this is one of the most difficult portions of the epistle, and one that is also at the same time one of the most controversial. And this evening we come smack up against the most difficult portion of the chapter and the most controversial part of the chapter, and so forewarned is forearmed. And so this evening, I'm going to be reading chapter 11, verse 25, and verse 26, and see if I'm able to cover those verses in our time together. So I ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Again, I remind you, dear friends, that this is nothing less than the Word of God himself. Please be seated. Let us pray. Father, even now, as we contemplate this mystery that is now set forth by your Apostle, that we may not be wise in our own opinions but that we may listen carefully to what is revealed to us with respect to that mystery. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you, I'm sure, remember vividly what took place in Israel and in Jerusalem in the year 1967 with that war that lasted but a few days and which culminated in the Jewish or the Israeli troops coming into the old city of Jerusalem. And you recall the television coverage that when the soldiers reached the Wailing Wall, what is left standing from the temple, even though firefights were going on, the soldiers threw down their weapons and rushed to the wailing wall and began to pray. It was an astonishing moment in the history of civilization. Now, there were many serious scholars then and now who believe that what happened in 1948 with the Balfour Declaration and the return of the Jews, to the Holy Land has absolutely no significance for redemptive history and likewise they believe that the recovery or recapturing of the holy city of Jerusalem at least to the extent in which it was recovered in 1967 also has absolutely no redemptive historical significance and that represents one particular school of thought of that subdivision of systematic theology that we call eschatology, which is the study of the last times, the study of the last things, the study that is with respect to the final consummation of the kingdom of Christ with His return and triumph in clouds of glory. Now, others at the same time have believed that what happened in 1948 and then again in 1967 has everything to do with redemptive history, and so much to do with redemptive history that they're looking any moment for the rebuilding of the temple and the reinstitution of the sacrificial system there in Jerusalem, all as harbingers of the imminent Return of Jesus. I don't think there's ever been a period in church history where more frenzy or more attention has been focused in the life of the church with regard to the expectation of the return of Jesus as we have seen in the last few decades, largely because of those events that I've just mentioned in Israel and in Jerusalem. I remember that day in 1967, I was watching these proceedings on television, and I was on my porch in my home in Massachusetts, and when these things unfolded before my eyes, I got in my car and I drove to the house of a friend of mine who was one of the most, and is one of the most distinguished Old Testament scholars in the world, who is one of those scholars who believes that indeed what is going on now in Israel has absolutely no significance with respect to the future kingdom of God, and I went to see him, and I'm not going to tell you his name because many of you who are students of uh, theology and of Old Testament studies would recognize it. And so I went to see him and I said, (laughs) Meredith, what do you think now? Uh, I had the newspaper in front of me and the videos, clips and so on, and he says, you know, I'm going to have to think about this. So I mentioned that in passing because even somebody who was so uh, steeped in this uh, knowledge, such an expert, was himself uh, really stricken by the sensational events that were unfolding at that time. Well, the question that we have here is, is there a future for ethnic Israel? Is God going to work again in history with the people who are Jewish, according to the flesh? And I think that in chapter 11 here, Paul has been laboring the point about his kinsmen, according to the flesh, Israel. And he talks about how in the course of redemptive history, the fall of the ethnic Jews has led to our being incorporated into the family of God as wild olive branches that are grafted into the root. And he talks again, as we've already seen, that if the fall of the Jewish people redounds to the blessedness of the nations, how much more their restoration And so, I think that we have to pay close attention to what he says here. Now, there are a couple of items that I find particularly fascinating in those two verses that I read to you, and I may be uh, easily guilty of reading too much into what the Apostle says in those couple of verses but for what it's worth, I'm going to spend some time uh, unraveling them. As Paul introduces his subject in verse 25, as we've mentioned already, he talks about a mystery, and I told you that a mystery in Paul's vocabulary means not something that is uh, uh, a problem that detectives seek to unravel or is the subject of a novel, but he speaks about that language by which that which was once hidden from view, is now made manifest by God as He reveals these things to us. And so now Paul again says, I don't want you to be ignorant, which is a concern that the apostle has in every epistle that he writes. He knows how destructive ignorance is to godliness. There's a reason why God has given us this massive volume that we call the Bible so that we might become mature in our understanding of those things that He has set forth therein, and not seek comfort or bliss in ignorance. And Paul again says, I don't want you to be without knowledge. I want you to be knowledgeable people. And so I'm taking the time now to set these things before you, lest you be wise in your own conceits and simply rest upon your own opinions, rather than the revelation of God. And then he says this, that this blindness that we've already examined, in part, has happened to Israel. Now, here's the phrase that piques my curiosity, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, beloved, the word that is used here in the text is a word that we call a time frame reference. The word that is used, that is translated by the English until, means up to a certain point in time, which point in time has a terminal uh, dimension to it, that beyond that point something changes. It refers to a definite moment, a definite uh, intervention in the chronology of history. And so, when Paul says that something has happened to ethnic Israel, to the Jews, a blindness with respect to the new covenant has happened not forever. Remember we saw at the beginning of chapter 11 that The problem with the Jews in their sinful apostasy was neither full nor final. Paul reminds us that he himself is of Jewish ancestry, so that not all of the ethnic Jews had fallen away from the covenant, so that it was not full. And now he's pointing out the second dimension, that that fall of Israel is not only not full, but it's not final. It's not the end of the story. This blindness that has come upon them has a historical limit to it. That blindness will be there until something happens. Let's get that point that the blindness in part that has happened to Israel will last until something happens in space and time. Now, what is it that is the until here in the text? He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The Latin refers to plentitude, the plentitude of the of the Gentiles, the Greek is the pleroma. Both words refer to that which reaches its saturation point. So that there is a point, presumably, in history where God's roundup, if you will, the extension of His salvific call to the nations, to the Gentiles, will reach its saturation point, after which God's relationship to ethnic Israel changes. Does that make sense? Now let me see if I can pursue that a little further by looking at a parallel text that is not exactly verbatim the same expression that the apostle uses here in Romans, but it is an expression that is so parallel that virtually every New Testament scholar notices it and uh, sees significance between the language that Paul is using here in Romans and the language that is used by his co-missionary, Luke, in Luke's gospel. And I'm referring to language that Paul, or excuse me, that Luke uses in chapter 21 of his gospel. Now, let me set for you, if I may, the context for this. In the 21st chapter of Luke's gospel, we have Luke's record and Luke's account of one of the most important prophetic discourses ever given by Jesus during His earthly ministry. This takes place very close to the end of His life when Jesus has come to Jerusalem, and He makes the prediction that the temple will be destroyed and that not one stone will be left upon another, With respect to the destruction of the temple, and with that, he talks about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Now, a couple of things we know with respect to church history. We know that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and we know that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. And we know that it was destroyed, both the temple and the city, after Jesus died, rose again and ascended into heaven. So that we know that Jesus' forecast of the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem took place several decades, about forty years, before the actual events took place in the year 70 A.D. If there is any moment in church history that is not incorporated in terms of the history of the New Testament record that is of utmost significance and importance to us in understanding the Christian faith, it is that event in 70 A.D. when the temple was in fact destroyed and the city of Jerusalem was burned to the ground by the Roman invaders. Now, here's what's so difficult. Luke has his version of this discussion that Jesus has with His disciples, which is called popularly the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because it took place on the Mount of Olives. And it is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. We read Matthew's account of it in Matthew 24, and then we read Mark's account of it uh, more brief and so on, and now we have Luke's account of it in Luke 21. Now, I have my Bible open to Luke 21 now, and I see the text of the Scripture of the chapter, and then I see in in bold print the subheadings for the chapters, which I hope you understand were not in the original text. Luke didn't uh, highlight each few verses with subheadings. These are added for our ability to locate sections of Scripture by the translators, and they give us these helps, and it says at the top of my page here, on page 1,646 of the uh, New Geneva Study Bible, the New King James Version, jesus predicts the destruction of the temple well no no harm no file there that's exactly what happens he predicts the destruction then the next one is a little more curious it says the signs of the times and the end of the age all right that's what it says in my bible signs of the time the ends of the age now you look in vain in chapter 21 of Luke's Gospel to find language about the end of the age. However, if you go to Matthew's version of the Olivet Discourse, there you see that language specifically there in the text where disciples are asking Jesus about this event that He's forecast, and He responds to them about the destruction of the temple and talks about the signs of the time and the end of this age. Now. Almost every time we see or hear that language about the end of the age, what do we think of? What is the end of the age? The question we have to ask is, what age? The age of the Enlightenment, the age of reason, the age of empiricism, the Cenozoic era, the Ice Age, the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, what age are we see, are we in in touch with here with respect to its end? Well, the assumption that 99 out of 100, if not 999 out of 1,000 people bring to the text of the New Testament when they read that phrase, the end of the age, is that they assume this must be referring to the end of time as we know it, the end of the age that corresponds with the uh, consummation of the kingdom of God. And maybe that's what it does refer to. I don't think so, but I'm a voice crying in the wilderness here, very small minority, and you need to know that so that you balance what I'm teaching. From what other people teach about this text. And as I said, this other text is so curious to me about the fullness of the Gentiles. Now, let me go to this verse in Luke 21, verse 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And here it is, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Now, stop right there. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. He gives the signs of the times that you hear about all the time. Wars, rumors of wars, signs in the sky, all of that sort of thing. And here the Bible says that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Now, I didn't finish the sentence on purpose. Our Lord predicted that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by Gentiles, which is exactly what happened in 70 A.D. But here we see that little Greek word, taught, again, which means until, up to a certain point, but not beyond that certain point. And listen to what Luke says. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentile until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Did you hear that? Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, here's my question. What does Luke mean by the times of the Gentiles? And what does Paul mean when he uses the languages of the fullness of the Gentiles being fulfilled? Do you see how close those two ideas are? The times of the Gentiles being fulfilled and the fullness of the Gentiles being fulfilled. Now, here's what is difficult. When the New Testament talks about the times of the Gentiles, which is very rarely stated, and this detail about the times of the Gentiles, this terminal point for the destruction of Jerusalem and its being in captivity and trodden underfoot by the Gentiles, is a detail found in Luke that is not found in Matthew or Mark it was this verse that I took to Meredith Klein I said explain this to me that there is this terminal point and was this description of the times of the Gentiles now let me ask a simple question what are the times of the Gentiles and does that phrase, the times of the Gentiles, suggest anything to your mind about some other times? There are times in redemptive history or a time, a period in redemptive history that the Bible describes as the times of the Gentiles. Now, what can that refer to if not a distinction between some other time And the only other time that would make any sense here, if we're going to have a distinction of the times of the Gentiles, would be the times of what? Where do we see, in contrast, the Gentiles always in in the Bible? Thank you, say it, the Jews. So in redemptive history, you have the times of the Jews, you have the times of the Gentiles. Here's what I hear Paul saying, you have that time in redemptive history where the focus of God's redeeming grace is on the Jews. And then you have a time in redemptive history where the focus of the development of the redemptive people of God is on the Gentiles. We know that in 70 AD the temple was destroyed, sacrifices ceased. And for all intents and purposes, the Jewish nation was scattered throughout the world. Their identity with Jerusalem was broken, except for their wistful future hope that sometime they may be restored. But in the meantime, a major understanding took place in the world. Before 70 A.D., for the most part, dear friends, most people in the world saw the Christian church as a subdivision of Judaism. That stopped once and for all in 70 A.D. when the judgment of God came with the vengeance on Israel. Her temple was removed block by block from her and her holy, Spirit, her holy city was devastated and given over to the control of the Gentiles. But according to Luke 21 and Romans 11, not forever, not forever. There still is a future for ethnic Israel. There still is a future for the city of Jerusalem if I'm reading this text clearly. Now here's where my position gets really hotly contested. I think that Jesus' prediction of the future destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem is the clearest proof in recorded literature anywhere of Jesus being, at the very least, a prophet sent from God because he predicts things that take place in the future that nobody could possibly predict with the uncanny accuracy that Jesus, in fact, predicts. The irony is, however, that this prophecy that so compellingly proves the truth claims of Jesus and should be one of the most uh, important proof texts of the Scripture for the authenticity of the New Testament and of Jesus Himself is the very text that the higher critics use more than any other text in the New Testament to argue against the inspiration of the Bible and against the infallibility of the prophetic utterances of Jesus. I made mention a couple of weeks ago of Bertrand Russell's little book, Why I Am Not a Christian, and in that book, along with other objections to Christ and to Christianity, he mentions that the uh, Olivet Discourse, found in Matthew 24 and also in Luke 21 and also in Mark, that, that this Olivet Discourse, of which I'm speaking now, is the clearest proof that Jesus was a false prophet. Why? The temple was destroyed, just like he said. The city was destroyed, just like he said. Knox, are you listening? Can't be thinking about going home and play that game. Did your daddy bring your Bible? Did you, did your dad? He's promised me that if you brought his Bible, he's going to listen. All right. Just check, hey, you guys don't get a free pass either. Why, then, is this text used as the the compelling proof against Christianity? Simply because of the time frame references that Jesus used in the Olivet Discourse. Because when he said to his disciples, pointing to the temple that not stone, one stone would be left upon another and that the temple would be destroyed, that Jerusalem would be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles and so on, the question that was burning in the minds of his disciples when he made this announcement was, when will these things be and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Again. End of what age? I believe Jesus is, now they're asking, the end of the Jewish age. And they ask a straightforward question. When? When are these things going to happen? And Jesus is not the least bit oblique in his response. He is straightforward and direct in what he says. He says to them, This generation will not pass away until all of these things take place, including His coming, presumably in judgment, on Israel. And He talks about the wars, the rumors of wars, and and all of that, and the signs of the times, and the signs of His coming, presumably that many people think He's talking now about His final consummate return at the end of time? I don't think so, because the tauta ponta, the all of these things which Jesus speaks specifically refer to the temple, to refer to Jerusalem, and to some kind of coming of Jesus, which the New Testament broadly speaks of as a visitation of God's wrath against his people, which, of course, fell with fury in 70 AD. But Jesus said, this generation will not pass away. Now, what's the plain meaning of that? To the Jew, a generation means an age group of people, and a generation was counted to include approximately 40 years. Elsewhere, Jesus said, some of you will not taste death until all of these things are fulfilled. You will knock over all of the cities of Israel till all of these things have been fulfilled. Now, if you're standing there listening to Jesus and you say, Jesus, when is this going to happen? And he says to you and to those in your midst, this generation is not going to pass away until all of these things take place. What would you understand him to mean? That it's going to be 2,000 years? before my prediction here comes to pass? I don't think so. As every liberal critic means, understands with the text, that the clear meaning of the text is that Jesus is saying this is going to happen in the future, not not tomorrow, not next week. I don't know the exact day or the exact hour, but I can tell you this, it's going to be within the next forty years before some of you even die. The plain meaning of the text is that Jesus put a time frame for the fulfillment of these future prophecies. But so how do people respond to the skepticism of higher criticism? I mean, I can't tell you, folks, when I was in seminary in in the midst of of a stronghold of higher critical theory, I had my nose rubbed in this text every day as an attack against the inspiration of the Bible. And I say, wait a minute, what if Jesus wasn't wrong? (laughs) What if everything that He said would take place within forty years did take place within forty years? What if what He was talking about of the signs of the times were the signs that were leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And He warned the people, when you see these things happen, don't go to the city, flee to the mountains, which was the exact opposite of what would take place in the ancient world when an army was approaching a walled city. When the Roman soldiers were marching through Israel the normal thing to do would be the people from the villages and so on would leave their homes and flock to the city with the greatest walls. And the greatest impenetrable fortress in Israel was Jerusalem. And Josephus tells us at the time of its destruction, 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered because they went to the city. Jesus told His disciples, "'Don't go there. Go to the hills.'" And the Christians were spared that destruction that took place within 40 years. But we think today we have the late, great planet Earth. We have uh, Left Behind. We have these guys that are telling you all these things. Now, there's earthquakes going on, and there's wars, and there's rumors of war, and all that sort of thing. And, oh, now we're on the brink of the return of Jesus. I don't think any of that stuff has anything to do with the final consummate return of Jesus because I think they already took place. And I think that not because I like some scholar's theory. I think it because it's what the text says is going to happen. And Jesus said it would take place. And you say, well, wait a minute. The moon hasn't turned to dripping blood, and the heavens haven't rolled up like a scroll. That's right you have two kinds of terminology in the Olivet Discourse. You have simple, didactic, normal language, and then you also have what's called apocalyptic language that uses catastrophic images to describe God's visitation of wrath and destruction. If you use your basic hermeneutic of interpreting Scripture by Scripture, and you look at that language of destruction, as it's used in the prophets of the Old Testament, the heavens rolling up and so on, that kind of language was used in the Old Testament to describe the actual destructions of cities like Tyre and Sidon in the Old Testament. And so it is appropriate when you have highly imaginative language to allow for an imaginative interpretation. But when you have simple declarative indicative statements, You treat those as declarative, indicative statements. Now, the point is is that when Jesus gives the time frames, He doesn't use that imaginative language. He uses straightforward, direct, indicative passages to His disciples. You want to know when it is? Some of you are going to live to see it. Now, was He wrong? That's what's at stake here. The trustworthiness of Jesus... The trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, what do evangelicals do about this? They say, Oh, well, no, Jesus, when he said this generation will pass away, he means this kind of person, the unbelievers, they won't pass away until all of these things be fulfilled. That wouldn't answer the disciples' question. That would be a pure evasion. They asked him a straightforward question when? He gives them a straightforward answer. You see the same thing in the book of Revelation, by the way. If you look at the time frame references for the first 20 or 19 chapters of the book of Revelation, the language of the text, the book of Revelation, is: this stuff is about to happen. Not something that's going to take place 3,000 years from now or 4,000 years ago. However, having said all of that, don't take my view to be those of the preterists out there who are saying that all of the future prophecies about the return of Jesus and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God have already taken place and that everything took place in 70 AD. No, I don't believe that for a minute. I think something of dramatic significance took place in 70 AD. I think it was the end of the Jewish age as they knew it. It was the end of the temple. It was the end of Jerusalem, but not the end of God's economy of redemption for His people. Now I sound like a preman. <clears throat> sound like one of those people, <laughs> because I believe that what Paul is saying here is that God is not finished with the Jews. He's been saying that throughout this chapter, and so if I come back now to Romans 11, he says blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Here's what scares me and what has scared me since 1967. It may be, dear friends, that in the economy of redemption, God has 5,000 more years where He's going to be bringing Gentiles into His house. Maybe. But when I see what's happening over there in Jerusalem, I don't think so. We may, in fact, in redemptive history, though I'm not going to make this as a a final projection or prediction, we may be on the very cusp of the last roundup of Gentiles. We may be that close to the next step of redemptive history where God is working with ethnic Israel. I don't know of any time since 70 A.D., where we've seen such a focused concentration of evangelism to ethnic Jews as we've seen in our own day, nor have I seen anything in church history that mirrors and reflects the vast numbers of converts to Christianity from Judaism. Don't make any mistake. I don't believe that God has two agendas, one for the Jew and one for the Gentile. There's one agenda that incorporates both the Jew and the Gentile in His kingdom. The final question here is when Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. What does he mean here? All spiritual Israel? To me, I think that would be departing from the way he uses the term Israel throughout the whole chapter, and in fact, going back to chapter 8, 9, and 10. He's talking about ethnic Israel throughout. And now he's saying, so all Israel will be saved. Does that mean... Each and every, if you know how the word all is used in Scripture, you know it doesn't function the same way we use it uh, characteristically to mean each and every. Does he mean to say that every ethnic Jew in the world is going to be saved? I don't believe so. But I do believe that the full complement of God's elect from Israel will be saved, and that this will come in a new redemptive historical visitation by God, the Holy Spirit, following the fullness of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled." So let me just summarize by saying I'm very very much interested in the use of Luke's term of the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled and its parallel usage here in Romans 11 of the fullness of the Gentiles being fulfilled. The apostle tells us he doesn't want us to grope in the darkness, not to be left in mystery, but he's telling us about the future of the kingdom of God, which I think we should take with great earnestness and with great joy and consolation. I don't mean to suggest to you that everything that God is going to do was finished in 70 A.D., but I do believe that our Lord told nothing but the sober truth, and when He said this generation will not pass away, He meant exactly what He said, and that generation didn't pass away until the temple was destroyed, till the end of the Jewish age came about, until Jerusalem was destroyed, until our Lord visited His people in the time. Of their wrath. Let's pray. Father and our God, we struggle so often with those things that you teach us about the future because they haven't happened yet. But we pray that we may not miss those things that you have told that have taken place. For in the fulfillment of that word, we are comforted in our souls of the utter trustworthiness of your word and of the teaching of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for this in his name. Amen.